What I'd like to speak about this evening, this closing night of the retreat, is how we can create a framework of understanding, a practice that does not fragment our lives into retreat time and time in the world. Because if we create that polarity, or we create that fragmentation, it very much undermines the continuity and the strength and the development of our practice. We limit it then to times of formal intensive meditation and treat the rest of our lives as something else. So how is it possible to understand the practice in a way that is integrated, in a way that encompasses and touches every aspect of our lives? And as with most things, the Buddha did this in a very exemplary way. He talked about the purification of mind, which is what the path of Dharma practice is about. The purifying of mind, the transformation of consciousness. Talked about this purification of mind as happening within three fields or three areas of training. the training in generosity, the training in morality or virtue, and the training in wisdom. This threefold training in generosity, morality, or wisdom is not limited to a particular form. It's not limited to a particular lifestyle. Can we arouse the effort? Can we arouse the energy to actually be practicing, to actually be cultivating these three areas in our lives? When we leave here, you know, and go out into the world with our relationships and work and families, will there be the effort to stay at the forward edge of generosity? Can we keep it in our mind that that's a quality or a parami that can be practiced, it can be developed, it can be strengthened. But the more we practice it, the stronger it gets in our hearts and in our minds. And generosity has tremendous power because 
Generosity is the expression in action of non-greed in the mind, of not holding, of non-attachment. It's really the expression of renunciation. And so in every act of generosity, we are actually cultivating and, and strengthening that aspect of renunciation, of letting go, which in some ways is what the whole spiritual path is about of letting go, letting go of craving, letting go of wanting, letting go of desire, letting go of attachment, letting go of clinging. And so every opportunity that we have to practice giving, we're strengthening that understanding, we're strengthening that parami. It's not insignificant. It becomes a tremendously powerful part of our living the Dharma, of our putting the Dharma into our lives. Generous with what? Giving of what? We can be generous with many things. We can be generous with our time. We can be generous with our energy. We can be generous with our love. We can be generous with our resources. And when we're playing the edge of our generosity, it's not always easy. And it sounds wonderful, we'll go out and we're going to be this wonderful, loving, generous person. And it's easy to romanticize it, as you might have romanticized three months ago coming to a retreat. <laughs> wonderful, I'm going to come for three months you know, and really get enlightened and be in this blissful samadhi and hopefully there was a process of disillusionment. And in the same way as we leave the retreat and go into the next retreat, which is where you'll be going tomorrow, perhaps there will also be a process of disillusionment, which means that we operate free of illusion about the difficulty of practicing generosity. It's not always easy, especially when we're playing an edge. Many times there'll be situations, perhaps the thought will come, the feeling will come to give, and then there'll be a lot of hesitation or holding back. I'm too tired. I don't have enough. Many kinds of hesitations in the mind. And at this point, a very careful discrimination is needed. Because although it's not mentioned in the texts, it seems that there's actually something which could be called right-giving and wrong-giving. Wrong-giving, meaning giving something because of some kind of moralistic should. When we really don't want to, but we're doing it because of a big should in the mind. And what usually goes along with that should? Very often a lot of resentment and underlying irritation and anger. So what actually are we cultivating with that? Not such wholesome states. There's another kind of right-giving which 
may include times of it being difficult. It doesn't mean that it's always going to come with you know, a kingly or queenly spirit where we can give up you know, our most valuable and precious things with an open and loving heart. There are times when it may be much more of a struggle and we recognize the struggle and still we want to do it. That's very different than the should. Because we recognize that this is something to cultivate and we want to cultivate it. We want to work with the struggle in our mind. We want to be able to see it, to feel it, And at those times when we can say to ourselves, even though that struggle is there, I want to go ahead and offer something. And then there's a tremendous strengthening, a tremendous energy. It's not unlike, you know, when we sit in the hall and we have pain, the difference between forcing the sitting through the pain because we think we ought to, and sitting through the pain because we're interested. There's a willingness to see what it's about. That same kind of willingness can be brought to this area of generosity. There are so many opportunities in our lives. It is such a fertile field for cultivation and development. It's the first of the paramis of the Buddha. Now, in the list of perfections, of virtues that the Buddha developed in his long evolution, generosity was the first. It brings about a tremendous sense of joy in our lives and a wonderful sense of connectedness The other night we were talking about how to find the meaning in life in things that are essentially empty. And this quality of meaning, the feeling of meaningfulness, very much comes about through this practice of renunciation, which is the same thing as giving, as generosity. We give up something in order to offer it. And so it's a real and deep cause of happiness in our lives. The reason that I'm emphasizing it so strongly tonight is because often mm, an occupational hazard of yogis is to develop something of a kind of meditation pride. You know, in, because our practice, our, our actual meditation practice can go so deep and be so fruitful, sometimes we tend to emphasize this aspect and neglect the other parts of the training. And what we want to do is to integrate all the parts so that they all have equal value. (coughs) 
It's an extremely fertile area for our practice in the world to look for ways, to look for opportunities to practice giving. One way that I've worked with it over the years, which offer simply as a suggestion, is one possibility, and we each find our own ways. So whenever the thought comes to give, I try to do it. Even if following that thought there are doubts and questions and you know, hesitations, if the thought came to the mind, I try to use the energy of that initial thought to actually carry it out. And as we do that over and over again, the giving and the generosity becomes more and more spontaneous. We do it more and more as a natural expression of our being. And it takes less thought, less consideration, and makes the mind very light, very, very soft, very connected. In this threefold field of training, generosity is the first. The second field of training, which again we can practice so well and so completely in the world, is the cultivation and development of morality and virtue. The essence of morality is the spirit of non-harming. Non-harming of ourselves, non-harming of other people, non-harming with our thoughts, non-harming with our speech, non-harming with our actions. Unless we take care with this area of our lives, the meditation will not get very far. It is the absolute, absolutely necessary foundation of meditation practice of deepening wisdom. Unless we have that foundation of right action, it will be impossible for the mind to come to a place of calm, come to a place of concentration through which we can penetrate into deeper levels of insight. And perhaps some of you during this course had the experience, at times at least, of past actions that might not have been so skillful come to mind and come to mind and come to mind. (laughs) And if we're living our lives perpetuating those kinds of actions, they continually come to mind. And it prevents the settling, prevents the, the steadiness. And it's not to feel, you know, to be weighed down by things we may have done in the past, because we've all done everything in our long samsaric evolution. Rather, it's to take for ourselves the strength which comes from establishing ourselves from this moment in a careful and considered sense of morality and virtue and non-harming. 
The basic framework for that is the five precepts. It was not killing, it's not stealing, not committing adultery, not lying, not getting intoxicated to the point of heedlessness or forgetfulness. But that's kind of the baseline. It's the baseline protection for ourselves. And we need that protection because if we were completely mindful all the time, it wouldn't be a problem. We wouldn't need the precepts. But because there are occasional lapses in our awareness, it's very helpful to have that support system, that framework of understanding, because it protects us in those times when unthinkingly and unconsciously we may be about to do something that's unskillful. If we have taken the precepts with care, you know, with the depth of commitment, in the moment of committing, in the moment of about to commit an act that is harmful, the force of having taken the precepts will arouse some wise reflection in the mind. It gives us that moment's pause to consider, do we want to do this? Can we refrain from doing it? This development of morality and development of virtue is very much connected with the development of our humanity. Because again, it's not coming from a moralistic place or a place of a lot of shoulds and shouldn'ts. Rather, it's coming from a place of care for ourselves and our fellow beings. We want to take care not to harm, not to cause more suffering. There's enough suffering. We don't have to add to it. But it takes a commitment. It takes a very conscious application, a conscious effort to be watchful in this domain and to strengthen our sense of morality. Because just like generosity, this aspect of right action can be cultivated and developed. We can refine it. And I hope, in some way, more than anything else during this last three months, you have gotten a sense of the possibility or the potential for refining the mind. That whatever conditioning we may have and whatever struggles we may go through and whatever defilements keep arising, there's that potential in us to refine this mind, which is the forerunner of all things. So we can refine our sense of morality until it becomes very shining. And what we're doing is we're refining our humanity. So many ways of looking at that in our lives. We've had a taste this week, just in the area of speech, the precept of not lying. Fruitful area to look at in our lives. 
because so much of our energy is spent in speech and talking. And it's not that the words simply go out into the wind and don't have an effect. They have an effect on other people, they have an effect on our own minds. It's no less important than the work that we do in the hall, watching the rising and falling. And especially outside of the retreat situation, making the effort to work with right speech, to refine and to perfect the virtue of truthfulness. It's a tremendous challenge and it is always quite amazing to me how difficult it is. You know, we all have this common appreciation of honesty, of truthfulness. We ask anybody in the room probably, you know, do you think it's a good idea? We all think it's a good idea. Why is it so difficult? Not in a general way. I think most of us kind of have it, we have it down generally. But what I'm suggesting is that there's a possibility for becoming very subtle with it so that we become totally straight without that many shades of deviousness in the mind, which we all know so well. (laughs) And in working with it, again, it's not to become judgmental and it's not to become heavy-handed and it's not to become moralistic. It's to be taken as a challenge, as an area, as a domain of working, of practice. And that can be practiced more skillfully. There's more opportunity to practice that outside of a retreat than inside, because we talk more. So it's not to neglect these areas of working. They are as much our practice as what we do here. And it's by realizing this, by, by taking care and making the effort in these areas, that we find that Dharma practice becomes our life. As I mentioned in one of the group, His Holiness Karmapa had a very nice expression of this. He said that it's possible to live the practice rather than simply doing it. Can we live it? And all these areas are ways of living it. There's the development and cultivation and practice of generosity. There's the conscious practice and cultivation of virtue and the refining of that in our lives. And the third field of work is meditation. In Pali, these three fields are known as dana, sila, bhavana. Generosity, virtue, and wisdom, or mental development. Practicing meditation outside of the retreat situation. How do we do that? There are two last Vipassana mantras which I would like to 
make an offering of to you. One is pay attention, and the second is to sit every day. The practice of meditation in our lives is the practice of paying attention, paying careful attention, paying very careful attention. Remembering that there is nothing, there is no experience in our lives which falls outside the field of awareness. Nothing, no matter what we're doing. From the moment that our eyes open in the morning through all the busy forms of communicating and relating and working and loving and family and everything, it's all a field for the development of awareness, of attention. But as was mentioned the other night, sometimes we get into the misguided perception that because we've put in this effort, this, this very tremendous effort you know, during the retreat, the expectation often comes that the awareness of mindfulness then should just follow us outside in the car or in the bus and out into our lives because we've done the work and you know, we've done it and now it should just tag along. It's not going to. So I would like to suggest that the same effort that was required to be mindful while you are here will be required to be mindful when you leave here. Rather than think that the awareness is just going to follow us, rather if we can get it in our minds, if we can set ourselves up with the idea that what we've been practicing in some way is right effort. We've been learning to make the effort, how to make the effort to be mindful, so that we can continue to make the effort outside in our lives. It absolutely will require that energy. It is not going to drop down from the skies or filter up from the earth it is going to take effort. One way of remembering this and strengthening this, which is the second mantra, is to sit every day. So let's all say it a hundred thousand times. Sit every day, sit every day, sit every day, sit every day, sit every day. You know, they have this new, uh, this new kind of self-help gimmicks of uh, subliminal programming, you know, where you play a tape and you just hear the sound of the waves and then there's the subliminal message being played. Maybe the IMS tape library will put out a sit-every-day subliminal tape. And again, now it seems that I'm sure it seems to you that to sit for a couple of hours a day will be easy because you've been sitting, you know, eight, ten, twelve, 
15 hours a day. What? Two hours. Nothing. It's not so easy. The pulls of the world are enormous. And before you know it, you know, you'll have so much work to do and so many books to read and so many people to speak to and family responsibilities and it goes on and on. And it's so easy for the sitting to get squeezed out. It's essential that the sitting practice is given a priority in the day, that you order the day around the sitting. Just take a look at your schedule, see what has to be done, and schedule in the time for the sitting. First thing in the morning, perhaps sometime in the evening. It is the foundation of sustaining and deepening the the meditative factors that have been developed during the retreat. Sit every day, sit every day, sit every day. Did you get it? Sit every day. It's essential. So it's to understand that nothing lies outside the field of awareness, the priority to sit every day. There are other ways also of bringing a strong investigative mind to our experience. And that has to do with appreciating the times of difficulty in our lives. When suffering comes in its manifold forms, it can be seen as a tremendous curse or it can be seen as an opportunity to understand something. Since it seems to come with fair regularity, it would be helpful to turn the mind in such a way so that we can investigate and look to see what's going on in those times of suffering. When the mind is caught, when there's fear, when there's strong grasping, when there's sorrow, when there's anxiety, when there's boredom, when there's depression, all those kinds of mental suffering that come to us, can we look to see what is going on? Now you have some problem in your relationships or in work. Not simply to become a victim of the difficulty, but to see that if the mind is reacting, if there's some kind of suffering which has arisen in the mind, that is exactly the time to look. Because very often we can get a profound insight into the Four Noble Truths at that particular time. Because the first truth is the truth of suffering. So every time that arises in our lives, that's the time to look, okay, what is the cause of this? What's going on in this situation that is causing the mind to suffer? Where is the attachment? Where is the fear? Where is the resistance? What don't we want to be with? 
What are we not willing to accept? It's all there. And so it becomes a very fruitful time for us to look and to investigate. It's an area of practice which comes up very often in our daily lives that can be very on with leading for us in our understanding and development of wisdom. So it's not to neglect those times of difficulties because they're very rich, extremely rich. The power of the Buddhist teachings very much has to do with the discipline of simplicity. And one of the things that we've tried to do in the retreat situation is to make everything very simple. Over the years, many people have suggested adding this or adding that, all of which, many of which, were helpful ideas. Special movement classes or lots of chanting or whatever. We've always, we've always made the effort to keep it as simple as possible. Sitting and walking. And sitting and walking. And nothing extra. Because there's a power in simplicity. Against the reference point of that simplicity, it becomes easier to see and to observe all the movements of our mind. There's not much distraction. It's straight, it's simple. So we can watch all the movements, all the judgments, all the likes, all the dislikes, and hopefully to gain some insight into that process. Is it possible to simplify our lives? And there's no particular form for it. It really has to do not so much with the external trappings, but a certain simplicity of mind. The simplicity of mind comes from letting go of excessive wanting, excessive craving, realizing that that is not where our happiness is going to be found. So much of our society is caught up in acquisition. And then we wonder why we feel burdened. Because we keep acquiring and acquiring and acquiring and it gets heavy. Now how much of our lives is spent supporting a lifestyle? We have to work like crazy in order to support a lifestyle. As we simplify and as we begin to see that There's actually a much greater kind of joy and happiness from being simple, from not wanting so much, not craving so much. There comes to be an increasing spaciousness in our lives, an ease in our lives. We can relax a bit. The same simplicity that we've worked with during the retreat, we can work with in our lives. 
And the simplicity that I'm talking about has to do with what we've been cultivating for these three months, and that is the simplicity of staying grounded in the present moment. We stay grounded in our bodies. The Buddha talked of mindfulness of the body as the first foundation of mindfulness, of awareness. It is so skillful and so helpful now, as we're busy in our lives and doing a lot of things, the simplicity of staying present in our bodies, to feel the movement, to feel the ground underneath our feet. It doesn't mean you know, that you walk down the streets of Boston lifting, moving, placing. It can be moving quite normally and naturally and easily, but instead of the mind being off and wandering, you're lost in the, the world of mental fantasy and construct, which is tremendously burdensome, we can be grounded in the simplicity of the foot touching the, touching the pavement or the feeling of the leg, some feeling in the body. By now you've probably all become experts in opening doors Every time you open a door, simply pay attention. You open, you reach, you touch, you turn, you pull. What's kind of interesting about this this, um, aspect of simplicity is that we don't have to do anything extra. It's being grounded, or being aware, of what we are doing anyway. And actually the fantasizing is extra. And that's, that's a whole extra effort that we have to make to, to create this mental world. And the simplicity lies in simply being there for what we're doing. To practice that, to practice that aspect of staying present, Staying present in the body. Staying present with our feelings, our emotions. And there's a difference between, or there's, there's a middle place between getting lost in our feelings and emotions, where we become totally identified and involved with them and are wallowing in them, on the one side, or on the other side, avoiding or denying or repressing both ways not going to work very well. There's that middle space where we can be open to and feel and understand and explore without getting so lost in the content. Just keeping that quality of interest in what is going on. Because the mind energy has so many different facets. As we go through the day, it's like the mind is continually manifesting in all of these different ways. Happy, sad, bored, excited, depressed, fearful, joyous. What is going on with all that? Because what we are is this process unfolding. And so can we take interest in it to discover all of these aspects of the mind.
we can do this as much in our lives outside as we do in retreat. Because it's the same process, it's no different. To understand that we don't have to fragment our spiritual practice. Not only don't have to, but it becomes a tremendous hindrance to us if we do. Cultivating generosity and practicing it. Practicing the refinement of morality. The refinement of our humanness. Practicing and making the effort to pay attention. Paying attention to everything. Staying grounded in the moment. Staying with the simplicity of the moment. Sounds easy. Because it's so simple. It's not complicated. But it's not so easy. As you've seen here, and we'll see probably when you leave here, that the mind keeps forgetting. What are the obstacles? What are the problems? that keep us from being in this simplicity. A major obstacle that we have has to do with our self-image. We have very deeply conditioned images of who we think we are. And out of that self-image comes expectation, comes judgment, comes wanting, comes craving, comes fear. And so it's necessary to look carefully at how this self-image arises in the mind and manifests in our actions and in the world. Because it's the crux of what keeps us from the simple awareness in each moment. And there are many different kinds of self-images. And we can begin to to observe it in so many ways. We can observe self-image in our posture. How we carry our body. There's there's an image in that. Or how we dress, or how we talk. The words we choose to use. How we relate to other people. It's what I call the posturings of the mind. And to be sensitive to really keep an eye out, keep the radar out for those posturings. Again, not with judgment, more with a sense of humor about it, or a sense of interest about it. Again, in one of the groups, as I forget exactly what we were discussing, but people were bringing up over and over again all the difficulties in the mind. And it reminded me of this one very wise statement, how self-knowledge is always bad news. Because we see, as we look more and more carefully, we see all these posturings, and we see the deviousness, and we see, we see it all. 
to keep a sense of humor about it, right? so that we don't we don't get too identified with it, but to keep looking. I must share with you, although many of you have heard them before, a few self-image stories. Because they take many forms. I'm running through the file to see (laughs) which of the (laughs) 10,000. When I finished college, I'd studied philosophy at Columbia, and I was very much taken with Spinoza. He was my main man. And I went into the Peace Corps. I was serving, teaching English in Thailand. During the Peace Corps training, we were, we were training first in DeKalb, Illinois, which was very suitable for Thailand, <laughs> in the middle of winter. <laughs> and then we, we trained in Hawaii for a couple of weeks. And before mm, we were leaving, the Peace Corps director came. He was telling us about what we were going to be getting into. And he described a few special assignments. In one of the schools, we were all training to teach English. One of the schools he described was this very posh, aristocratic king's school, school under the king's direct patronage in Bangkok, right opposite the palace. I immediately raised my hand. (laughs) Most people had this image of themselves as Peace Corps, going to the jungle. I had a very different image. He described this school, it sounded exactly what I was looking for. (laughs) It turns out, it's a happy ending to this story, because the school happened to be just down the block uh, from a very famous temple in Bangkok, the Marble Temple. And after being there for some time, started going to this temple there were a few Westerners who had become Buddhist monks who were leading discussion groups. And the first groups I went to, I went with Spinoza in, not so much in hand, but in mind. And I was going to explain to these monks you know, about how things really were. I went to these groups asking so many questions, 10 billion questions. And I realize now that I'm just paying my karma back. (laughs) Finally, out of desperation, one of the monks said, why don't you try to sit? Very exciting. Get all my paraphernalia together. Tells me how to sit. I get all kinds of things, you know, blankets to fold up and cushions to sit on. He just explained a little bit of Anapana. You know, watching the in-breath and out-breath. Sit down, decide to sit for five minutes. That was my first big attempt. It was fantastic. You can't go wrong in five minutes. (laughs) 
And it was so exciting because it was just the first tiny glimpse that there was a path that led in as well as a path that goes out. And even though I didn't get very far in that first five minutes, just the turning around of the attention, turning around of the awareness, to see that there's actually a way of going in and exploring what this is all about. I got so enthusiastic. Next time I sat for 10 minutes, 15 and 20. And I got so excited that I began to invite my friends over to watch me meditate. (laughs) That was my main ploy then with my friends. They didn't come back too often. But actually, I'm still doing it. (laughs) So thank you all for coming for these three months. (laughs) I appreciate it. We have different kinds of self-images. Self-images of ourselves as a meditator. Self-images of ourselves as being in the world. Really, our practice is to see those and to let go that we don't have to be identified, we don't have to be caught with them. And it's the letting go of the self-image which allows us to drop into the simplicity of the moment. It takes a lot of sensitivity because they're so conditioned in our mind, they've almost become invisible. We have become so much who we are that we have to become very delicate in our awareness to begin to see where we're caught, where, where we're identified, where we're holding. The world is a very useful place to look at that because in many ways it's continually reflecting it back to us. You know, in our relationships, in how we interact with people, in the choices we make, it's all a reflection. Can we look? Can we see? Can we learn from it? One of the most valuable aspects of training and of meditation for myself came from studying with different teachers. Because with the opportunity to study with different teachers, all of whom were very unlike one another. Some were very... had a lot of personal power, very dignified, very guru-like. Some were very light, very curious, very active, very interested in everything. Some manifested just a tremendous depth of love and compassion. Some were manifesting the warrior quality of heroic effort all very different. And what can be learned from that, which is essential for us on this path, is that we don't have to become like anybody else. We don't have to imitate anybody. That our path of practice is to become more purely ourselves. Because we all have different personalities and different ways of manifesting 
And if we can become accepting of our own development, of our own purity, of our own wisdom, not only do we come to a very great sense of personal integrity and self-acceptance, we stop judging so much. We stop comparing so much. Because we see that everybody is manifesting their own way, their own style. So it's very freeing when we can let the practice become non-imitative and simply practice and let the Dharma work through us. Gary Snyder's uh, Zen teacher in Japan uh, had one very beautiful teaching. He said that in Zen or in the Dharma there are only two things. To sit and to sweep the garden. And it doesn't matter how big the garden is. That's all. That's the whole teaching. We sit and we sweep the garden. And it doesn't matter how big the garden is. We sit, we practice, we cultivate attention and we manifest. And some of us will manifest in a little garden and some of us will manifest in a big garden. And that's what our life is. It's a deepening and a manifestation. And we go in and we go out. For the past three months, you've been sitting. Now it's time to sweep the garden. Can you sweep the garden with care, with impeccability? And from a, from a deep place of connectedness, of compassion. to close the talk and again to bring it back and to understand the framework of what we're doing in this cultivation of dana sila bhavana of generosity of virtue and of wisdom is again to emphasize the reflection (coughs) about this precious human birth that the opportunity for refining our minds, for transforming consciousness, the opportunity to do that is so precious because in this long samsaric wandering, it's very rare that beings are in the circumstances where that is a possibility. And so we find ourselves with this possibility to understand that the mind has the potential to be purified, that we can actually purify it of greed and of hatred and of delusion. We have that opportunity and it's such a precious one. And so in every aspect of our lives, can we consider and can we reflect in what way are we cultivating this purification? To make that the reference point to make that the context, to make that the meaning of our lives. 
and to see our practice, our formal sitting practice, to see our relationships, to see our work, to see our play, to see everything in that context with that understanding of the preciousness of our opportunity and the possibility of purification. It really connects us with the deepest meaning. Do you have any questions that you'd like to discuss? One hour a day is survival. It's just basic survival. If you don't sit an hour a day, you'll probably go under. Two hours a day is maintenance with, you know, you're kind of making a gentle inroad. Three hours a day, I think you'll find a significant deepening. That has been my experience. You might, you might find it's somewhat different, but as a general framework, it seems to be reasonably accurate. And so I would suggest, many of you, to, to sit three hours a day if you also are, you know, have a full work and family responsibility can be, sometimes that can be difficult. I would certainly try to aim to sit twice a day, to sit in the morning, to sit in the evening. There's nothing particularly holy about an hour. It could be 45 minutes, it could be 50 minutes. But you want to sit long enough to give your mind at least a fighting chance, so to speak. to quiet down a little bit, you know, and when you're busy in the world, it's going to most likely will take a little time. So if the sitting's too short, you might you might not uh, give yourself that opportunity. No, part of it, if you either have done or would like to do the metta meditation, you could do one hour of vipassana and one hour of metta, something like that. You could do metta as part of each hour. Uh, So it's not rigid in that way. The reason that the emphasis was on the sitting rather than the walking is that 
mostly if we're leading a fairly active, busy life, we take very little time to actually sit still. And so as a counterbalance to the rest of the day, it kind of just balances things out. But the walking is extremely helpful, and it can be done in several ways. Um, something that will very much enhance the quality of your sitting practice would be to even take 10 minutes of slow walking before you sit. And it does, just in, even in a small room, just to go back and forth, you'll see that if you do that, even for a very short time, when you sit down, your mind will be much more collected and concentrated, and so you'll drop into a deeper place much more quickly. It has a very noticeable effect. Uh, so I'd, I'd very much encourage you to do that. Also to pay attention during the day in a careful way every time you walk, every step you take. And it can be at whatever speed you're walking, but to make all times of walking a walking meditation. Uh, And again, that's a very easy way of infiltrating the day with mindfulness. Uh, In addition to those two, then if you wanted to do a full walking period, of course, it would be wonderful. When you speak of uh, three hours a day, are you you talking about three separate sittings? Not necessarily. Either in some combination or... I find it very difficult to be mindful when I'm with people, even if there isn't talking. Um, Somehow the, the potential for <laughs> Damadina said that she finds it difficult to be mindful when she's with people, even you know if there's no talking. But even the potential for talking uh, creates. Uh, it would be very interesting at those times to see what's going on. <laughs> there, there, there's something more specific, though. There's something very specific. If you're in a group of people and you feel, and there's no talking, and you feel that it's difficult to be paying attention, there's definitely something happening in your body, in the mind, that... Because something is there that in some way we don't want to be with. Because if we were totally with what was there, it wouldn't be difficult. It would just be what it is. And so it's a fruitful area to look at. That's why I happened to ask Deepa uh, not too oh well, fairly recently about uh, quality of sitting. And uh, she happened to say something that, was that if you sit best thing before you go to bed, many of the effects carry through the night, and it's an extension mm-hmm. of, uh, I don't quite see what actually, I mean, mm-hmm. you probably still dream and things like that, but mm-hmm. there are possibly effects of carrying. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful way to end the day because it really is, it's a way of releasing a lot of the accumulation of the day and so you go into sleep in a much emptier frame of mind. And so the sleep becomes more restful as well, as well as whatever carries through.
it's helpful before you get involved in the day. Because as soon as you get involved, you're going to find that it becomes increasingly difficult to find the time to sit. You know, so that if you can get, just get into the routine, you get up and either you have a cup of tea or you don't or whatever, and you get up and you sit, it really sets you up for the day in a very, in a very good way. <laughs> yeah. Or if you wanted, you could sit for three sessions of three hours. <laughs> Joseph, I find that um, driving time is real mindless time for me. And I've tried in a, um, you know, to figure out what the focus is. Is it the seeing? Is it the hearing? Is it noting driving, driving? I, I would. I find that staying in the body, really, f- just staying aware of your body in that posture and the movements, uh, you can stay pretty grounded. Uh, also, it, it's. Uh, it could also be a a good time to uh, listen to Dharma talks. <laughs> it's interesting that in in the Buddhist. Uh, in the list of wholesome actions, he lists both speaking the Dharma and listening to the Dharma under the category of meditation. Now, in the different cultivations of generosity, morality, or meditation, because it has a very purifying effect on the mind in the development of wisdom. When, as <laughs> to <laughs> quote Sansanim, <laughs> paraphrase Sansanim, when you drive and listen, just drive and listen. <laughs> it, it's okay. It is crucial to understand that we want to be able to discriminate between our concepts about things and the direct experience of things. And it does not mean that we throw the concepts out. So you want to develop the facility for being with experience, if a concept about it arises, to be aware of the concept and to pay attention to whether the concept is telling us anything. Because otherwise you will find it very difficult to function in this world. (laughs) There There was this place that I was practicing in India, there was an elephant 
like a working elephant. And sometimes I'd be walking into the main temple or to a chai shop or whatever. Sometimes more often the chai shop than the temple. <laughs> that was my gesture of honesty. <laughs> You know, and I would be walking in quite mindfully, you know, really paying attention to listing, moving, placing. But when I heard the bells on the elephant, I didn't just go lifting, moving, placing. I got out of the way. And so we have to learn how to respond appropriately. And so just keep in mind that sometimes people get a false idea that meditation means that you drop a whole conceptual framework. And No, I have to do what I have to yeah. get out of the way of manual. I guess, um, you know, if it's any suggestion about how to cultivate the arising of the concepts so that I have something to pay attention to. Yeah, I, th- I think that it, it, in fact, won't be so much of a problem. You know, there may be isolated instances, and uh, probably more often than not, it will come from sort of not doing the appropriate thing in the moment. More often than not, it will probably come from forgetfulness rather than from pure, unadulterated awareness. Well, what about the laws of reverence? <laughs> <laughs> what about it? <laughs> <laughs> Seems to be a reality, right? No, it's quite individual. Uh, what was the question? Loss of memory. <laughs> <laughs> what about loss of memory? <laughs> My experience has been that there's been memory has become very selective, and so there's been a loss in certain areas, but. The Four Noble Truths remain intact. <laughs> so it seems to work out. <laughs> about the uh, five precepts um, and uh, about taking intoxicating liquors, what about a glass of wine sometimes? The precept, really, as I understand it, reads to avoid intoxicants which cause heedlessness. Now there are different levels of refinement of that. In a general social sort of way, a glass of wine is not going to cause much heedlessness for most people. Although, you know, if it does for you, then it's not a good idea. And so I don't think there has to be a kind of a rigidity about it. However, if one wanted to work on a continuing refinement of that precept, so then then we might undertake, even if it were for a period of time, just as an experiment, you know, to see, okay, what's what's our mind like if we don't take any alcohol? You know, because I think that it could be seen as a further refinement. Uh, in terms of 
I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't try to figure it out in that way. Rather, uh, just to take the opportunities as they present themselves. You know, and when there's an opportunity and you have the interest and motivation to do it for whatever time you have available. Uh, and also to experiment for yourself to see if you have the option of doing it, you know, in those several different ways. Uh, for you to see for yourself which which works better for you. I don't have any particular sense of it. And I have another question on uh, the meta practice. If it's if it's difficult to visualize a, an image of a face, is it do you find it more helpful to do meta with the eyes open, looking in the mirror, or to just go with that basic knowing that you're sending the meta towards a particular person yourself? Or mm-hmm. You you could spend uh, some time working uh, or giving emphasis uh, to to creating and holding the image by looking at the picture for a few minutes at a time, then closing the eyes, you know, trying to see, trying to hold it in the mind as it fades out of the mind. Again, opening your eyes for several minutes, three, four, five minutes at a time closing the eyes, holding it, um, and see if over a period of time that helps you to hold the image without the picture. Um, people have different facilities for, for having mental pictures in the mind. Some people find it quite easy, others, you know, it's extremely difficult. Um, after some time of working with the picture in that way, or the mirror, uh, after some time of that, I would not use it. And I'm really reflecting what Deepama has suggested. Um, and then just to try to create it in the mind as much as possible and to go on with the practice. So I've been working with um, this playing the edge of generosity and giving and doing actually what you've mentioned, that if a thought arises to give something, to try to do it. And what I've found is that every now and then, you give something and there's regret in the mind afterwards. It seems like that regret can stay in the mind for a long time. Like, you know, I remember something that I gave a year ago and there was regret at that time. <laughs> and the regret will come up with the memory. And so I wonder how to work with that aspect mm-hmm. of it. Okay, I think that uh, you have to take a little more careful look at the thought comes in the mind between the thought coming in the mind and the actual giving of it, just try to get a clearer sense of the degree of willingness to do it. Even if, as I say, even if there are considerations and you might find it difficult, but if there's there's a kind of joy of working with that difficulty, then I think it'll be fine. I mean, after the fact now, having given something and that regret is there, um, I guess, I guess it's, there's a version for the fact that there still can be regret that comes up with the memory of something that was done. So I'm wondering how to work with that now. Uh, with the regret in the mind. Yeah. I, well, actually, now just as I talk to you, I realize it's the aversion that's keeping it. You know, 
Good. You get an A. <laughs> Let me. I wouldn't yeah, I wouldn't anticipate it if if you know a situation comes up where you really lose sight of what to do. The practice is very simple. It's to be mindful. You know, not to hold on, not to push away, to see everything come and go. If for some reason some experience is happening and you lose sight of that, you can always mm, just stop for a while until you have a chance you know, to speak to somebody about it. So I wouldn't let that fear uh, stop you from practicing. Also, th- this might be a good time to uh, to talk about sharing the practice uh, with other people because I think that's come up in different contexts. It's obvious that in this world there's a tremendous need for the Dharma. And in some way, it's our responsibility to share it in different ways. One way of sharing is to be living it. And that's, that's the most fundamental, the most basic way of communicating it. It is also possible to share it you know, with people who may have a sincere desire to learn about the sitting. I think that there would not be difficulty you know, in giving just the very simple simple instruction of sitting down and watching the breathing you know, and noting what's happening. There's a very big difference between doing that and be, between sharing the practice in that way, in that simple way, and becoming a meditation teacher. Um, and it would be helpful to recognize what that distinction is because the latter could be very difficult and could get into a lot of difficulty if there's not the uh, if there's not the necessary training you know behind it because you really i mean as you all know and as we work together we go into some very deep and subtle places of the mind and unless there's a lot of experience about how the meditation works as we're exploring the mind there's, a, there's great potential for, for difficulty. And so there's not um, the recommendation that you go out and you know, start doing leading intensive meditation retreats. That's on one side. On the other side, as I said, to share the practice in a simple way, I think, is fine. Really know, come from your own experience and... Um, I have, I have confidence in your, in your understanding of what the basic practice is, that you're able to do that. Does that, seem, does that difference seem clear? You've oftentimes referred to the cutting edge, being right on the edge, and I sort of have a general 
concept of it, but I wonder if you could really define exactly what that is, one side and the other is. When I, when I speak of the edge, uh, really what, what I mean is at that place where it begins to get difficult. You know, the edge of what we feel comfortable with. It's like we're doing this in, in whatever area, whether it's in generosity or morality. You know, we feel comfortable and we feel okay with having a glass of wine with dinner. And so the edge would be, just as a way of exploring further, what would it be like not to have the glass of wine? Or to, you know, somebody, we see an opportunity for giving some of our time for something, but we don't really want to do it. You know, there's a, there's a kind of reluctance. Playing the edge would be seeing that, seeing that there, there might be a need, that there's a holding back, and determining whether there's a willingness to play that edge, to go, to go a little past our boundaries of what feels comfortable. Things like that. In the sitting, you know, maybe to sit a little longer than one might normally. Because that's a way just of continually extending. And, and I think that for most of you during this retreat, you know, the boundaries were extended enormously from three months ago in many areas. I would experiment. The noting you might find helpful um, in staying aware, you know, and see whether it's possible for you to do it. If you can stay aware, that's fine. And experiment to see whether the noting helps you in that. Okay. Can you talk a little about uh, frivolous talk? I mean, there's a lot of talk we have sort of about the world and about events, and you know, often it seems to sort of harden our views and feelings about things. You know? A speech is such a rich... <laughs> It's a gold mine of practice, N- not only in terms of truthfulness and honesty, but what Atapemo is, is bringing up in terms of useless talk. Now, how much we say that is totally useless. <laughs> you know, serves no purpose, no good purpose whatsoever. Uh, and to see the effect of that on the mind, that that keeps the mind agitated. And so to take... It really, it becomes interesting to take areas or, or periods, you know, in our life where we make experiments with these things. I think I've mentioned, you know, in an earlier talk, making the experiment not to speak about a third person. Just take a week or a month where you don't speak about any third person. See what happens. Or to take a certain period of time where we don't engage in useless talk. 
we'll become very quiet. You know, and our minds will probably become correspondingly quiet. Um, I think that it's inspiring to realize that this mind and body is a medium, just like an artist works in a certain medium, you know, or a sculptor or whatever, a musician. This mind and body is a medium, and we can create something beautiful with it. We can really fashion the energy of our lives. And to realize that, and to take responsibility for doing that, that's what our practice is about. It's refining this and purifying it. And we do it in speech, we do it in action, we do it with our minds. This Before we close this evening, and I think Deep is going to, do you have is going to read, uh, or a message from Deepama. Um, I just like to tell you all that it's really been a wonderful three months, and the connection that's developed in practicing together feels so deep and there's so much love in it. It has been a real privilege to work with all of you. So please come back. My mother wanted to come, but she is not feeling enough, enough strength. So she sent a message through me for you all. My dear children, I am very sorry that I could not come to see you all and say goodbye, goodbye due to my sickness. I was so pleased that I could be with you in these three months. I noticed that you were doing so hard and followed the instructions of the teachers. Many of you had good realization in meditation. So you should not give up to practice it in any situation. All my children especially those who are doing meditation since long time. You know that 
this world is full of sufferings of course most of the people starts to know when they become old but the truth is that there is a suffering from birth to death everybody want to have happiness attainment of happiness is the object of all human beings and all living beings but since nature has endowed human beings with mind which enables them to distinguish between right and wrong it is through the cultivation of mind that human beings can be able to eradicate wrongs and establish right which alone can bring real happiness not only for himself but for the entire world so the importance of development of mind which can be done only through meditation after long studies and practiced lord buddha had attained perfect enlightenment and became buddha so he presented us a great gift in which way we can reach to the path of the goal so my children you have learned the process and please keep continuity when you go home and try to observe five precepts of course i know that you cannot do like as you did in the center but try to be mindful in every walk as much as you can so that while you come to center and join the retreat it would be more helpful to bring mindfulness and concentration also whenever you find time from your walk or home you please come and join the center to improve your con- more concentration i know you all love me but i will be more pleased if you keep continuity of practice at home many of you came to me individually and with group i don't know how much i could help you through my advice but i like you to forgive me if i spoke anything wrong also <clears throat> i am very grateful to you all for your great cooperation with me in any way also i am very grateful to joseph sharon who are the skillful brilliant and <laughs> and well experienced teachers to whom you were having this almost all the years and of course michel also doing done very well <laughs> uh, they are also my dhamma children and always they are keeping close contact with me for long years and helped every way to meet you all i am also grateful to the staff <coughs> of the ims 
who helped me in every way and always looked after me and supplying whatever we needed. I am again very grateful and pleased to you all and never forget for all of your cooperation. If my health permit, I will I will try to come again and meet you. I am blessing you with my heart full of love for you all and wish you all success in achieving the goal to Nibbana. Yours affectionately, Dipama. I also thank you very much for your cooperation in every way on my behalf, on behalf of Mr. Barua and Rishi. We will remember your great cooperation and hospitality and hope to meet you in future. Thank you. We'll have the closing, closing <laughs> tomorrow morning. Um, does anybody remember what it said on the schedule? Uh, eight, to nine. <laughs> eight to nine sitting, and then. No, o'clock was closing. Okay, so we'll we'll meet here. Please, everybody, come to that eight o'clock sitting. Why don't we sit just for a few minutes and Usarotama suggested <coughs> using it to send a little metta to Deepama.
this is the very moment not to forget not to fragment the practice. This moment. Thank you.